Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. On February 20th, Lighthouse welcomed Albert Garcia, a poet and author of three books of poems, including his latest, A Meal Like That. Following a craft class, Albert joined Lighthouse instructor and former Denver Poet Laureate Chris Ranzik for a free poetry reading and reception. My name is Jovan Mays, if you are unprivy to me. I am the uh, Community Engagement Coordinator here at Lighthouse, and I have the fantastic opportunity to uh, MC this event. Um, now, I come from a background of poetry that is uh, very interactive, um, a uh, call-and-response community within the greater slam poetry and spoken word communities here in Denver. Sometimes when I go to poetry readings that are not our readings, I get sort of uh, weirded out by silence. Um, uh, <laughs> because I don't believe that... Um, when I, even when I read poetry, it's not that I am always silent in my reaction. You know, sometimes things hit sort of the base of the kick drum inside of yourself or it pushes all the air outside of your body, and there are sonic reactions to that. So um, I'm not sure what traditionalism would say um, um, on how to react, but we have a few things that we like to do in our circle that maybe we could try to indoctrinate here today. Okay? <laughs> One of them is um, the simple snap, right? Yeah. Now, the snap is really nice because it's something that you can do during someone's poem that may not be too distracting, but uh, shows the poet that, yeah, I'm feeling you. And you know, I, I don't care what style of poetry you choose to do. It feels good knowing that you're felt, right? And so uh, let's practice that real quick, this, this snap thing. Yeah, it says a reaction. The other thing that, 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 that I like to uh, kind of lean in on is what I call um, the ancestral grunt, okay? And this is when something happens in a poem that just makes you go, ugh, ugh, mm. All these things count, Okay, as, as reactions, ancestral grunts. Okay, they don't even have particular tones because they just happens, but just let it happen. Okay, let's practice the ancestral grunt together. Mm. Oh. Mm, mm, mm. Okay. Right. okay, these are all ways in which that you can react to a poem. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the Lighthouse is really doing a great job putting together a continuing to uh, build upon their event structure um, where there's more and more things coming. And I think uh, I'm particularly excited tonight uh, because I have been uh, a student, a pupil for the last uh, year here, and um, I don't often get to hear my teacher's work read. So it's a really exciting opportunity for that. I have some um, fairly lengthy uh, biographies to give you now on the people that we are going to listen to tonight. I'm going to try to make them zesty. And if they, uh, <laughs> and if they strike you, you feel free to just react to it. <laughs> Albert Garcia is the author of three books of poems, Rain Shadow by Copper Beach Press, Skunk Trail by Bear Star Press, and recently released, A Meal Like That by Brick Road Poetry Press. Individual poems have been published widely in journals such as North American Review, Willow Springs, Poetry East, Prairie Scrooner. Did I say that right? 
See, you got to let me know. I put that twist on it. And Southern Poetry Review. He has also published Digging In, Literature for Developing Writers, um, published by Prentons Hall. His poems have won various awards, have been featured in Ted Kuzer's American Life and Poetry, and have been read by Garrison Keillor on Writer's Almanac. Albert has a bachelor's degree from Chico State University and an MFA from the University of Montana and an ED from Benedict, from, how did I say that, Benedictine? Benedictine University. Forgive my ignorance. I'm learning as I'm, I'm learning about you right now. Okay. Uh, he taught community college English for 17 years, is now the Dean of Language and Literature Division at Sacramento City College. He lives with his wife, the artist Teresa Steinbach Garcia, in Wilton, California. Give it up for Albert Garcia. Uh, and an announcement that I probably should have front-loaded with is that um, those of whom may have expected to see Elizabeth Robinson tonight will not be seeing Elizabeth Robinson tonight. Ancestral grunt. Mm, okay? Um, because uh, she has apparently came down with some sort of illness, but um, during um, Chris, Chris's set, he is going to um, pay homage to her, um, which will be a fantastic thing. So let's hear a little bit about Chris, huh? Denver Poet Laureate from 2006 to 2010. Won a Colorado Book Award for Poetry for his first book, Never Summer. His subsequent collection of short stories, A Return to Emptiness, was a finalist for the 2005 Colorado Book Award in Fiction. He's the author of three books, including Language for the Living and the Dead, published in 2013. New editions of all his titles are available or forthcoming from Conundrum Press. A native, New York, a native New Yorker, he has lived in Montana, Wyoming, California, and Colorado. Okay, man, you're doing good, man. <laughs> Working as a reporter, editor, and professor, he served as an assistant to the editors on the definitive anthology, The Last Best Place, a Montana anthology. Chris holds a master's degree in English and creative writing and journalism and has taught at the Lighthouse since 2005. So um, enough of me wasting your time. Give it up for your first poet for tonight, Chris Rancic. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thank you all for coming. I, I never, ever take Lighthouse for granted and the community that comes with it. And uh, it's really an honor to be here tonight to read to people that uh, I, I appreciate knowing in so many ways. So I want to start out by reading a couple of poems from Elizabeth, who could not be here tonight. And I, she's home right now, I'm sure, wishing she was here. So uh, I want to read uh, first a poem from her book. Uh, I wanted to read this one first. Um, a poem from her book on ghosts. Uh, had a very, we had a very interesting and stimulating conversation about the soul in one of my recent classes, and uh, so I thought it would only be appropriate for me to dive in with this poem from Elizabeth called The Soul. The soul in its doorway, and then the doorway dies. This is misbehavior. Each soul is a kind of manna on itself, a doorway that recedes in size until perspective tells kind falsehoods, that the doorway is fitted to the soul. Slick manna of meaning is soul's parasitical soul. This is not good. Goodness does not have a structure. 
The soul loves a termite's logic of structure. It eats it. Soul reproduces itself a hundred, no, a thousand times, and eats itself. Infinitesimal teeth make hurly dust. The soul compels love and extermination by taking away the larger structure. Each of us souls acquires many, many smaller structures. A home inside pearly dust. The tooth's logic is the doorway. Manna spoils if not eaten immediately. Around us, we see it descend. It tells us we are one. Be united. I see it descend. I see the doorway cut into the belly of the manna. Soul, disclose this soul. Madly repeat yourself. Like a fine mist in the air, one doorway thrown open after another until the porthole states its purpose, disgorge purpose. We are one pulse, particulate and tinting the atmosphere. We see the spoils descend, immediately surround us, all souls. I aspirate, I surround us. Faith will brandish the blade that will cut toward the inner workings. Hence, the inner workings escape and slip around to the door. And there they shrink and make the soul's perfect structural opacity. Only repetition does violence, but that is no shirking of the good. The necessary good. The good constraining of the doorway. We do as I immediately sink down into it. I do believe the soul's logic is good. <laughs> uh, and so here's another poem from Elizabeth. Um, ancestral grunt, Elizabeth. <sighs> okay, good. That's, that's a good one. Uh, this is um, a poem called The Altar, uh, and uh, is dedicated for my mother. I'll down the side of the house where I want, went each day, picking berries or cutting vines, a dream of insufferable summer heat. Vegetation gleams with its green verbiage and abbreviates me. More eloquent, the evening's cool sips at my mother and at me. We blend, feigning ease in the heat, rest and fatigue, we gulp back a supreme measure, length of summer, length of stride. Foreshortened stream, smog, family dispersal, arthritic dog. Each of us, each has us bent to its whim. Weed and dog, neither knows a wrong direction. Each lapses into indolence. See, a coat of unrest can be covered over. On what day the dog last barked? What throng of siblings and foreigners shingle the wall with their images? The same heat retains us, here, August, or not. An innocuous flame merely stings. Let the season's warmth soften. We wait at its behest. I hope she is well soon and returns to us. 
so to dovetail off that, I want to read. I also want to read a poem about uh, mother or mothers, perhaps. Um, I, I want to give some credit to so many of the people that I, I participate in our workshops, who week after week and session after session bring in new work. And I'm always emphasizing new work, bring in new work. And that's an act of some bravery, I think, finally. So I want to read some new poems tonight that aren't, these haven't been published. And, uh, and that's an honor to all of you, in respect to all of you who bring in new work each time and make, um, make a go of that. So this is a poem called Mother Dying. Mother, matrix, source, and substance. From your body came a monster and an angel in one package, joyful wreckage, troubled winner, humble hero, stumbling zero. We will witness your declension, knowing nothing of this business. Mother, show us what's below us, present, future, past, or never. First, You birthed us, now you leave us. We are now lost in a forest, lost the children who adore us, lost the scout who knew the root, gone the moon, dry the well, touch the stone, hear the bell. Um. Back in 1999, uh, I was teaching in Littleton, and uh, for all, those of you who are from Colorado, and e- even if you aren't, you know that the uh, word Columbine uh, has a special meaning. And uh, for years, I did work with the students who came and survived out of that experience at Columbine High School. And recently, a uh, very brave woman has come forward, uh, Sue Klebold, um, mother of let me put it this way, one of the people who died in Columbine. And uh, she was a co-worker of mine. And, and um, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very proud of her for coming forward and speaking to the issues uh, that have affected her life. So this is a poem that I wrote uh, a while back, but it's, it's still fairly new. And uh, so I, I would send this out in honor of her bravery. And it's called uh, Columbine Antiphon. What would a father do with this news? What would a mother do? Break bones in their hands, pounding the earth, break every oath and promise. Where are the souls of the suddenly dead? Where do killers' souls go? Nowhere, nowhere. You know the place. Nowhere you can know. Why does the grief of fathers pool? Why do mothers hang their shreds from a hook of silence? Their ghosts have endless memory, and the veil that they haunt is vast. Okay, that's kind of heavy. So um, let's change the mood. Um, these these poems are from a manuscript that I've been working on for uh, about four years now. And in, uh, please, could it be done now? Uh, I'm trying to finish. Um, 
I found myself in a Chinese restaurant one night, and the as you know happens at the end, they bring you your check, and there's these two wretched little cookies on there, and they don't even taste good, and you know, anyway, and they always have something tried or just, you know, sort of really just absurd in there as your fortune. And I remember sitting there thinking, what if, wouldn't it be kind of cool to have misfortunes in your cookies? <laughs> So this poem is, uh, I really think I can market this. Uh, these are misfortune cookies. So I want you to imagine for each one that you've snapped open this little nasty little thing and you're about to... Okay. Misfortune cookies. If you are reading this, you are already lucky. Next time... Check your dim sum carefully for stones. <laughs> she doesn't love you as much as she loves the poo-poo platter. <laughs> your habit of leaving small tips will follow you to hell. <laughs> the bad news is you will not be fired from your job. Always bet on number seven. You'll still lose, but will feel strangely vindicated. You just ate too much, didn't you? Yes, the hostess sat you here on purpose. Dare to dream, for you the greatest risk of all. Entropy is inevitable, but will now increase focus on you. <laughs> the best time to invest your money was before. <laughs> the one you fantasize about cannot remember your name. If at first you don't succeed, recognize this as a pattern. If there was a God, it would be laughing at you now. It's definitely time for a new wardrobe. The answer that you most need went in the cookie to another table. The cat pees on your shoes because she wants more affection. Mother lied, you are in no way special. <laughs> there are many new resources for those about to be audited. Cheaters never win, but since nothing else is working, reconsider. The very stuff that got me into trouble as a kid, I know. Okay. All right, let's see here. Um, 
One of the great pleasures in my life uh, uh, being a father is that when your kids get old enough at a certain point, they begin to really return things to you uh, that you really need. I mean, they do that all, all the way along. But uh, um, I was talking with Albert today about asking him whether his adult children had started influencing his musical tastes. And this is one of the you know, wonderful things. My son has um, brought all kinds of new musical acts to me. And one of the other gifts he brought to me was disc golf, which I passionately enjoy. And, and uh, it's good for your health to get out and hike. And so um, I think in some conversation I was having, someone, uh, some people were talking about who they wished they could disc golf with. And uh, so I wrote this poem in response. And it's called, I Want to Disc with the Dalai Lama. The lost boys with whom I run chain smoke and swear, thicken the air with blunt desires, jesters and wise guys, gamesmen of rare ignorance and goodwill. They don't know Leonardo's line, nor the love poems of Neruda. Let me disc with the Dalai Lama at a course hung with mists and moss, where gentle gators return discs to the banks unmarked. How little a mist putt would mean to the 14th incarnation of the Bodhisattva of compassion. <laughs> I could finally learn to release discs with mindfulness, master secret techniques for speed without effort, glide without anxiety, landing where planned. In my heart, only goodness, in my ear, the laughter of his holiness, wading into thistles and flowing orange robes. True happiness, he'll say, to find a bright disc in a field of tall grass, a good line to the chains, no detectable wind, and deepest quiet in the world. Uh, these, are, these are also new poems, um, so I, I think I'll read one more. Um, and this poem is, uh, I'm doing okay on time here. Uh, this is a poem in six parts. I've been encouraging people that I, uh, are in my workshops to you know, try to write poems in sections or um, sequences to try to develop an idea and to go to some different places, uh, you know, extend ideas and so forth. Um, Working down here at Lighthouse, I often have a great opportunity to walk on Colfax. And those of you who um, uh, ever get a chance to walk on Colfax, it's just not like anywhere else in America I've ever been. Um, so uh, I was out there one time, and I saw a gentleman who reminded me of nothing so much as the character in, from Shakespeare's plays, Falstaff. And unbeknown to him, I followed him for a while. Uh, and sort of, you know, made a mental note and tried to gather his aspect. And uh, so this is an attempt to try to blend this fellow uh, and the image of Falstaff. So if you don't know Falstaff, you know, you can probably follow along here. But uh, this is a, a poem called Falstaff on Colfax. And the only thing I will tell you is that the, it's a crown sequence. So the last line of each, sec each section be becomes the first line of the next section, linking it. So here's Falstaff on Colfax. You can go look for him when we're done here. One, he hits on the woman serving his coffee in Pete's Cafe. 
an awkward ghost in clothes again. And when she laughs him off, she laughs him off, honestly, which is rough. He's not who he once was, and anyway, who was he? He did have a horse, a great roan beast retired from fierce battles, and yes, the lovely waitress would have been much impressed. Later he walks west, bars blend into other bars, the Ogden throbs and the chicken joint savory smoke scents the sidewalk bazaar, invitations in his right ear, incessant traffic on his left. Two. Incessant traffic has left him deaf in one ear, the effect of walking away from the sun mornings toward it evenings as it sets through a haze. He sleeps to forget and fails, reeking of spilled wine on a raft of shade cast by a smog-strangled juniper. All he remembers when waking is a dream-faded willow, how she danced discarded beer cans into the asphalt at the alley's mouth, her spangled wrists two graceful snakes making whisper music only snakes make. So what if he sweats last night's liquors, disgorges the dumpster burger as soon as he's choked it down? This is how the discarded survive. On the sidewalk, a wretched half-hard-on thumps his thigh as he walks. Where's Dalt's hair sheet when you need her? Where the bright garter given him under moonlight and breezes? A decent knight remembers his pledge, how watchers on the ramparts listened, envious, at receding summer, coaxed the last scent from rows of lavender spilling toward the river. Three. Lavender spills into the river of pedestrians from the mystic shop of crystals and incense. It's sent not enough to mask the urine tang infusing his vile apparel. He still has his wits and knows he's the cause of wit in others. The briefcase containing orders for his redemption parades past, attached to a clean-handed, unwhiskered whelp whose gleaming black hair, pomaded at great expense, will soon enough molt and expose the same dome any man owns. One coin in his pocket needs another to jingle against, and alone makes neither noise nor sense as a strategy for the war. Better a thief than another boar, better a grubby lump of flesh than a seized statue on a rearing horse, pedestal bound at the corner of a traffic circle, at the center of a traffic circle, pigeon shit festooned and carbon cloaked, ignored by commuters who never knew a sword. Four. He once knew a sword was the most, was most powerful sheathed, a threat implied, not uttered. Now he slumps in the shade of a doorway and shouts about his anguish until sleep overcomes his tongue. He wakes half sober, which is close enough. 
and begins again his quest for a butt of sack, what's owed to any laureate, to street spitters and tower sitters, poets who can earn, who all earn pain one word at a time. He curses, his curses are lyrics, but his songs do nothing for the pigeons, critics who stain his shoulder and call that a review. The feral cat's kitten mews from the folds of his greasy coat, hungry as him. Indian summer can't last. Soon enough, the wind will bite beneath his rags, and every night will be dangerous. Five. Every night is dangerous, even an ancient one, tottering as he grubs gutter butts and tucks them in a pocket, not dry enough to light. He'll still be damp come nightfall, wretched and wine dizzy, half-starved, tucked in tight against a reeking dumpster and chasing dreams, drunk and listing past kiddies. He veers hard right, busts his forehead on a pole. Gears lock in his jaw, but the pain stays distant, and his twin window ghost's blood stain repaints in his concussed boozy brain a face from lost soldiering days. In that past was a message he failed to write down, though his ears ring with fragments, his eyes fill with the moon's flown sparks. Six. The full moon flings sparks that settle and smolder on his greasy coat as he sleeps, curled into the iron angle of a Cheeseman Park bench, dreaming of East Cheap streets, a fire roaring in the boar's head hearth, tankards of ale and bawdy songs, when mocking honor was easy, word sparring and punning with the Prince of Denver. Thank you. Thank you. All right, uh, just a couple more, uh, and then we'll uh, turn this over to Albert to do a little magic, too. So uh, let's see. I want to read something from my very first book, which continues to recede in the rearview mirror as the years pass. But um, some of these poems were written um, as much as, uh, let me think, probably more than 30 years ago. So, uh, But this is one dated to 1993. And I was talking to someone about the experience, so I, th- I thought I'd read it. Uh, it's called Dealey Plaza, Dallas, November 1993. Cars keep coming down the slope toward signs that read airport and interstate. No X marks the blacktop. Of course, no blood remains. A man selling newspapers, JFK Today News, shadows me over the grassy knoll wanting my dollar. But it's the dead who will buy him lunch. Construction workers dig at the dirt, but no ghosts fly up from the tips of their shovels, shrieking, proclaiming the guilt only assassins know. What are they building or excavating? Things were torn down here. Then one worker says, 
can't dig through these goddamn roots. It's supposed to be the grassy knoll, not the rooty knoll. And he curses again, the trees shaking pigeons out of their hair. They say Jackie climbed over the seat to escape, to seek shelter from the Secret Service man, to get out of the rain. Her terrible fear must have spilled everywhere like noon sun in November will, and 30 years later, it still drips off the bushes and the concrete steps, invisible to these people who have come to prod the soft holes history left in this place. And I came, too, who knew nothing on that day except my mother's breast and how my mouth filled with bitter milk. I knew nothing else, not Texas, not bullets, not Cuba or Khrushchev, my own death more distant than it would ever be. Now I'm under the sixth floor window listening to the newspaper man talk trivia, conspiracy to a customer who fishes in his pocket for bills. Cars keep passing the spot, fenders and windshields rippling as though liquid, and I half expect a motorcade heading north on Houston, turning on Elm and slowing, everyone smiling for the last time ever and squinting into the light, cameras clicking and whirring. All right. Um, I want to finish with a with a song. Uh, I'm not going to sing, but I am going to kind of sing. Uh, I love. There's something that I've always loved, and it probably goes back to childhood and the reading of uh, poetry as a child, uh, which is unabashedly musical. Children get that benefit. As we get older, often we're shunted away to to, to under the auspices of other kinds of poetry being more sophisticated, but there's something about the rhymed couplet which I think is uh, incredibly beautiful and reminds me of um, a time past. So I want to read this poem. Uh, This is from my most recent book, uh, Language for the Living and the Dead. And a friend of mine uh, sent me a photograph of an abandoned home in uh, Del Norte, Colorado. And uh, this hung up on the wall in my study for a long time before... I finally knew what I wanted to say, and it came out in one one shot. So uh, this is a poem called uh, Casa del Norte. Dry wind burnishes elm trees' burls. Weathered paint, the hot sun curls. A hundred hammered nails hold fast the slats of pine that they outlast. The wood itself now giving way to another night, another day. Tall grass invades the welcome mat, pierces the porch where grandfather sat, cursing the drought, cursing the rain, cursing the tracks that bore no train until even the magpies, even the crows, abandoned his stunted cornfield rose and flew away from forsaken dirt, from the old clothesline, where a tattered shirt dangles down discolored shreds, ghost scent sifting from the threads. No one inhabits this house now. Rust on the doorknob, rust on the plow, dust in the cupboards, flies in the sills, last residents still beneath their hills. 
dreaming the dreams of the ancient dead, where the river is honey and the rocks are bread. Thank you. So I'm very pleased to uh, introduce, uh, secondarily introduce, Albert Garcia. Thank you, Chris. Um, it's an absolute honor to be reading with Chris. Um, we were commenting out on the porch that we've known each other for over 30 years, and this is the first time we've ever read together. So um, it's a real treat. And it's an absolute uh, pleasure to be here, too, at Lighthouse, which is, uh, which is a community treasure. Uh, we don't have this in Sacramento. We have a nice poetry organization in Sacramento, but it's but it's, it's not like this, I'll tell you. Uh, so you have something special here. Um, I'm going to read um, maybe just one poem from my last book called Skunk Talk. Um, I, may, I might read two poems. Uh, just mentioning the title sort of um, begs the question, why skunk talk, right? Um, but I'll get to that in a minute. I'm going to start with a poem called um, I watch you paint. Um, my wife is an artist, and uh, she paints watercolors. Um, and I've always, I've got no talent in that direction whatsoever. Um, I've always enjoyed watching her paint, though. It's, it's, it's magical to me to see someone work um, with that um, medium. And um, so the poem's called I Watch You Paint. After stretching wet paper over board, Washing in the first gray hues, leaving white where the man and woman will stand, you step back and squint. I like this, watching you imagine, seeing the picture by looking at your eyes and the muscles of your face. You mix another layer of wash and another, and soon it's nearly complete, and I'm seeing it as if with blurred eyes. But you see more. You're bleeding magenta into the man's shirt. The woman's black hair crosses her face, and you scratch it with a knife for highlights. Your brow creases. I see now the man's hand is on her shoulder. There is wind. Her white dress blows tight against her body. I want to ask you what is happening, but it seems the wind is in you. And now what? You've got a needle to pick the dry pigment from the man's eye, leaving a tiny white dot on his pupil, which, though small, now makes me realize he has the very expression I sometimes get when I'm angry. You hate that look, but there it is in the man's eyes, and now your brush dashes around in his hair. I haven't spoken for hours. The man clearly is losing the woman. You've washed a darker gray into the sky. Finally, you sit back and look across the room. Then you glance at me, and it seems I haven't seen you in years. I say the painting is sad. You say it's not finished. Well, the, the, the title of the book, Skunk Talk, um, um, comes from a poem called Skunk Talk. I grew up around skunks. I actually had a, a great uncle who 
um, was sort of the the guy in the county. This is in California. I grew up in the Central Valley of California and and still live there. Um, but my great uncle was the guy who. Um, was sort of the repository for all um, injured or or stray animals, including skunks, including raccoons, including ringtails, hawks, deer. Um, so as a kid, it was great, a, a veritable zoo at his house. Um, and the raccoons and skunks sort of came, went in and out of the house as they pleased. Um, <coughs> none of the skunks were descented. Um, um, marvelous little animals, but you just don't want to startle them too much or, 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 or hurt them or, or something like that. Okay, so the poem is called Skunk Talk. We're talking skunks. I say I like the smell, not the overbearing fog left on a dog's snout, but the gentle scent they carry everywhere. She says I'm nuts. They stink plain and simple. She wants more wine. Sitting cross-legged on the floor, she wants me to get it. I ask if she's ever felt the bottom of their feet, patent leather. I'm telling her they make wonderful pets if you find them young and abandoned. Her face is in a magazine, fingers in her hair. I pour more wine. She won't look at me and hums softly to herself. I'm saying all animals have odors. It's a matter of being used to them. Then I'm thinking of her hair, the way she twirls it in her left hand, its smell. I used to bring it to my face in the night as she slept. I can't recall the words I would use to describe it. Sweet? No. Fresh? Wild? Let's go to bed, I say. She looks up and moves her bangs from her eyes. No more skunk talk? No. Thank you. So most of the poems I'll read tonight are out of my new book called A Meal Like That. There are a lot of food poems in the book, so that sort of accounts for for that title. (laughs) Right on. (laughs) Um, I grew up in the Catholic Church. Um, and uh, which was a blessing in some ways and, um, and problematic in other ways. Um, it caused me confusion along the way, as you'll see in this poem. And do all of you know what steelhead are, kind of fish? It's a rainbow trout that uh, is sort of like a salmon in that it um, runs um, uh, from a, in, a, in a river out to the ocean and then returns. Okay. Um, Okay, this poem is called The Sea of Galilee and the Sacramento River. I figured they were steelhead, those fish that tore the nets and filled two boats after Jesus told Simon Peter to cast into deeper water. Ten years old, fidgeting in my family's pew in the dark light of Sacred Heart Catholic Church, I could only imagine Jesus and Simon wearing hip waders, standing in an autumn riffle of the Sacramento, pulling in one shining sea-run rainbow after another. Simon starts to believe after Jesus shows him the right size fly and how to present it. (laughs) And when Monsignor Casey read Simon's repentant plea, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man, 
I thought, too bad, and dwelled on nets ripping, flapping silver filling the boats, joyful shouts of fishermen lining the banks. I just knew how Simon and the others had felt that day, how a guy can spend hour after hour staring into dark currents, waiting for a sign or someone to lead him upstream to better water, only to trudge back home with an empty ice chest. So when Monsignor read that they had dropped everything and followed, my mind gleamed with the scales of a thousand fish, and I thought, yeah, I'd tag along with that guy too. (laughs) Okay, so I I grew up on a walnut orchard, Um, and um, our house was on a a little hill, if you will, um, more of a mound than a hill, and we discovered um, as we uh, after um, after the house had um, been built and and we lived there a while um, that the hill had been used uh, for other purposes um, back in time. This poem is called "Dig." The day my father's shovel bit into something hard and brought up fragments, abalone shell, this far from the ocean when he pulled out the trunk and roots of the fruitless mulberry he'd felled and revealed in the hole what they'd been cradling, a skeleton, a child's, an Indian's. I stared at the bones, the black dirt, the small round pieces of shell, and knew I should be quiet. I decided she was a girl, her skull small, eye sockets looking up from where she lay, half embedded in soil, half once again in the valley's winter air. I wasn't old enough to see this land without an orchard, a grassy alluvial plain stretching down to the river, but I could imagine her picking blackberries with her mother along the creek behind our property, filling baskets. Her small fingers, not so different from mine, grew stained with the berry's juice. My father tried a few stories. Maybe she caught a disease, was killed by a mountain lion or bear, or drowned in the river. Can I touch? I was ten. I wanted those bones, and, kneeling, leaned into the shallow grave, felt blood rush to my face. Nearly upside down, I ran my finger along the edge of her pelvis, jutting through the soil like a bowl, until my father started shoveling, filling the grave, and I was on my feet again, my head dizzy, hands on my own skinny hips, and listened to the whole received soft thuds of dirt, the rhythm of my father's work, the sounds of a straining body of breathing. Okay, so this will be a change of pace. Uh, we talked a little bit about, uh, about work-related poems. Um, I taught for a long time. I'm now a dean, and so I go to a lot of meetings. Um, and um, and um, occasionally I'll get annoyed at, at, at one of these meetings. <clears throat> there are certain people. Um, I, I basically get along with most people just fine, and, 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 and I don't think I show my annoyance very much, but some, then sometimes you have to write um, to, to get it out, right? This poem is called Presentation. It doesn't have to be um, an education or, or college kind of setting. I think this could go for lots of meetings, lots of uh, presentations. 
The way you laughed at the meeting sounded like an animal dying. Halting. <laughs> uneasy. So I didn't believe your nervous proposal or that you could lead anything requiring people to follow you. <laughs> your eyes, like small flakes of bronze, said something entirely other than what you wanted. You wanted me to join you. You wanted me to say yes to whatever it was you were pitching. But I could see only that your smile, large and open-mouthed, didn't match the sound of the words leaving your lips. Words that quickly filled all corners of the room like small birds flying up against each other. So much movement, so much energy in their chaotic flapping that I wanted to run, wanted to dash out into the courtyard where language resided in things, bricks, fountain, a pigeon sitting composed on the building's ledge. So far, I haven't actually run like that out of a meeting, but, um, but I've been tempted uh, several times. This time, that's, that's right. <laughs> I've got a few relationship sorts of poems in, um, in, in this book, and um, I find myself writing about communication a little bit more. Um, I'm not sure why. It's just um, something that's interesting to me now, I suppose. Um, this poem is called Park Bench. There should be a park bench. We'll sit next to each other, watching a man throw a tennis ball to his yellow lab, sending and retrieving the dog whose loyalty to task is clear to both of them. I'll say something to start, something I've wanted to say for years, words I've never before been able to put together, and you'll hear them perfectly, my words like a child's wooden blocks you can hold in your hands, turning them for their modest gleam. What you say comes as a breeze that sinks in my skin, not warm, not cool, just what I needed to feel and hear, like bathwater, like tea. Then we sit, and the dog lopes out again to retrieve his ball. The man waits for what he knows is coming, and the breeze, if there, moves between us, back and forth, silently. debated about whether to read this poem. It's a little bit of a hard one to read. Um, it's a poem that an editor at a press I'd sent this book and who that almost took this book said, I will not print that poem. I will, I will not publish that poem. That's one that I won't. There's some things, uh, he said, I'm really an open-minded person, but there are some things that shouldn't be written about. So, anyway. <clears throat> The poem is called November Task. The sun, that lurid persimmon over the row of eucalyptus, will leave us in minutes. But by then its stain will set behind your eyes. Quit crying. You're not carrying the shovel to the field, digging a hole in the muck of winter. You're not hoofing it back to the garage to lift our cat's emaciated body, a bag of bones and tumors into your arms. I try not to look at the slip of pink tongue she hasn't the energy to keep in her mouth. She drools, can't stop her body from trembling when I set her beside the hole facing the sun. 
She's beyond turning to look at me. And you are in the house, not wanting to know the shovel's weight above my head, the sound it makes falling through wet air, the dull thump, and then another before I slide her body, muscles twitching off the wet grass. It tumbles into the dirt like a small sack of fruit. The soil, moist and heavy, sticks to the shovel as I fill in the hole. Don't ask what I expected or why I can't bear to see you. This is the last poem in the book. It's called River Scent. There's, there's, um, there's a smell that, that comes with water anywhere, right? Um, that can go from a river to a lake to a pond. And it can vary some, but, but, there's, but, as, but as you think about it, there's sort of a continuity of smell. Um, and it comes, um, as I um, see it anyway, um, from decay. River scent. It's death you smell down by the river. Decay of leaves and the mud-flat sedge, rot of salmon carcass, algae dried white over gravel. You smell it from your car, window open to the spring sun, idling in traffic on the bridge. It's only a trace of what the canyon carries, but you realize that scent of mud and freshwater clam, of heron shit and poplar leaves, of water-soaked, co- of water-soaked cottonwood trunks, has been with you always, ever since you stood in a riffle with your father, casting for steelhead, or earlier as you sat in the warm shallows of a backwater, your parents picking berries behind you. That's when you breathed, and the scent settled in the cells of your lungs, so even now... It's a mystery in your breath. And when you're close to death, it's what they'll smell when they bend to kiss you. I skipped one that I wanted to read along the way. I've got a couple of love poems in this um, book, sort of praise of beauty poems, if you will. Uh, this poem is called The Weather in Your Dress, and it's got a little epigraph by, um, by a, a, a well-known um, poem by Theodore Retke. Ah, when she moved, she moved in more ways than one. The liquid angles of your dress here at your breasts, here, again, flowing over your hips, pour themselves across my mind. Mild February air has just begun to stir, but we know Pacific fronts swoop down off Alaska with winter's numbing anger. Soon eucalyptus will dance in the wind, a frenetic release of leaves and twigs. For now, the hem over your knee moves just a little, the cotton at your side pressed lightly against you. Yes, this has been a year of storms. Each week we imagine the weather map's new story, hot and cold air masses that collide in our skies. Each week we brace ourselves with thick sweaters and parkas. But this minute, 
I swear, you spun to look my way, and your dress moved, so I felt it across the room, the very start of a breeze, a new weather system from a land of warmth and all that sways gently in the air. So I'll finish with a, with a few newer poems. Um, I live on about five acres now, and we have a lot of fruit trees, okay? And uh, so you've got to take care of them and, 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 and make sure they're healthy and they produce. Um, but there is a condition called fire blight. Do any, have any of you um, heard of that? Um, it can um, attack your apples or pears in particular. Um, we have a fruit that we grow in the Central Valley called the loquat. Are you familiar with, with that? A wonderful fruit. Um, in Skunk Talk, I have a book, I have a poem called Loquat. Um, so it's, it's one that I definitely like. Um, but I had to actually, I actually lost my Loquat tree to fire blight um, this last year, which is, is um, in my mind, tra- tragic. Uh, so the poem is called Fire Blight. That warm spring rain, gentle wash of pollen from the air, welcome soak in the raised beds, beads on the newest petals of those Easter crocuses just pushed up in the leaf litter under oaks. You could make a photograph of how it shines in this early morning light on the waxy leaves of my loquat without ever knowing what you're seeing, the perfect conditions for Erwinia amylivora a bacterial burning from inside, causing some leaves to brown and wilt, then a twig, a branch. Get your hand shears, your loppers, cut back all you can, and cleanse your tools with bleach after every cut so as not to spread it. In the end, if it burns into the major limbs and trunk, start digging and hack out the root ball. Get it all, toss it on the burn pile, and light the match. You know the theme. You know it right now. Disease, pestilence, and evil reside right here among us. At this moment, I'm breathing in the spore of something that will settle in the cells of my body, waiting for an exact moment no one has yet understood to deform me and grow. Today, on northwest beaches, millions of sea stars scarred with white lesions are losing their colorful limbs. They disintegrate, oozing from the inside. Scientists can't figure it out. We all want answers, cures. We can trace the black death's spread to fleas carried by rats. But what supreme force caused that bacterium to emerge to begin, to begin with? God? Nature's proclivity to weed its own garden, to prune out its weak by first deforming it? I read of Mongols hurling their plague-ravaged cadavers over the walls of Kaffa, their dead as weapons. I just want to pick some fruit instead of burning this ravaged tree. I want to taste the sweet sugar of ripe loquats and pears. I want to shine their skins on my T-shirt. I want the chance to live forever. Two more poems. This next one will lighten it up considerably, I think. It's sort of my example poem that you can write a poem about anything, you know, and, and um, you can just have fun in, in, in doing so. <clears throat> or maybe it is more serious. I don't know. You, you, you can decide. The poem is called Letter to the Mixed Nut Company. 
<clears throat> I'll start by noting the ratio of cashews to almonds. <clears throat> Out of whack, beyond what any reasonable nut lover will go for. The number of pecans per handful is fine, ditto the peanuts. However, I'm saddened by the small and paltry Brazils sticking out like obscene little fingers in the glass bowl on my coffee table at last night's party. I mean, I want them. They taste the best, as anyone can tell you. But to have to push one's way through the salty peanut halves, the ubiquitous cashews like a bowl full of apostrophes, it's more than a guy should have to tolerate while trying to make oneself clear about the essentials of agrarian philosophy to a woman in a blue dress and finding a place to rest his drink. (laughs) (laughs) That's just goofiness, you know. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to end with a poem. uh, Another poem that's difficult for me to read. They say it's good for you to to face your fears. Someone said that. I don't know. know. Many people have said that, right? So this is a poem about um, um, a fear of mine. Um, the poem is called Trypanophobia. Is it a word you've, you've heard of before? That's why I, I, I had to Google it, you know, and it's, uh, but, but it is a word. Um, I, I have a fear of needles. It, it's, it's irrational, um, but it's real, and, it's, and, and, uh, and I can't stop it. I can't, I'll, I'll avoid doctor's offices and, and, and I mean... I will go if I absolutely have to, but, but you have to kind of pull me and, and, and push me to get there. Trypanophobia. It's not so much the pain, but the idea of the needle, of feeling it before it arrives, of having my skin sweating, punctured by someone else's sense of appropriate pressure, the pop the new equilibrium, my blood coming forth, drawn into that clear vial that shows my vital fluid is not red, but purple-black, or a strange sense of some other liquid, cold and seeking out my frailties, squeezed into a languid vein. We can sit and rationalize this. The pain is minimal. It's all very quick. I can avert my eyes and stare at the detailed poster of the urinary tract. (laughs) You could hold my hand. Still, my head swirls. My breath is caught up and stuck under my rib cage. I'm hot. Go to a happy place, you tell me. Go fishing on the river. My mind won't do it. The river drowns me and leaves me dead on a half-submerged snag, a heron stalking in to pluck out my eyes. So I'm back in this room of disinfectant and sickness. The nurse prepares the syringe, never looking at me. All business until she's finished swabbing my arm with alcohol and peers up saying, Okay, this may sting just a bit, like a pinch. Gesturing with the needle so I'll see it, she grins. (laughs) This has been great. Thank you very much. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.